and welcome to the St. Barnabas Bible Podcast. Unfortunately, what we had recorded to release today, due to technical issues, has to be re-recorded. So instead, uh, we're choosing to release this talk from our conference back in the autumn. So hopefully you enjoy this in place of our normal podcast. Uh, And remember, you can find more of these talks on our website at www.stbarnabasbibleschool.org. Good morning, we're about to get started, so if you'd like to take a seat, there are handouts on the front seats, Uh, so if you've sat on a seat without a handout, I'll permit you to come and grab one and go back to your seat, I won't force you to to move forward. Um, Good. Well, good morning uh, and welcome, welcome to to the first conference of St. Barnabas Bible School. Uh, I'm really glad to have you with us uh, today, and I hope you'll find the day uh, helpful, I find it enjoyable, even. Uh, I'm just going to briefly run through the day so that, we, uh, so that we know what's happening, and then I'll get on with the first session. Um, so, first up, we're all in here together uh, on a session, What is the Church? That's the question we'll be looking at. Then we'll have a, a coffee break in about 45 minutes or so, so a 15, 20-minute coffee break. Um, and then we've got a, a choice of two workshops. Uh, Tony will be leading one on uh, singing and music in the worship service, and he'll be doing that here. Uh, and I'll be leading one on the church's community, and I'll be leading that in the, uh, in the crash room just there on the left. So you've got a choice. Pick one of those. Don't try and do both. You'll not manage it. So pick one of those after the coffee break. Uh, then after that, those workshops will have lunch um, for, uh, for an hour or so. Uh, lunch provided. It's a good lunch from Chrissy Babkia. I don't know if you know it. It'll be good food. You'll enjoy it. Uh, and then after that, we'll come back together for another session altogether. Zach will be speaking on what is, what is worship, what are we doing when we, when we gather together on a Sunday. Uh, and after that, we'll have another coffee break and a final Q&A session to end the day. So that's the, that's the layout of the day. Um, very good. If you have any questions about what's next, just ask, and we'll be able to tell you. All right. Let's begin. Let's pray as we get started. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless our time together today. Uh, Help us as we look at your word, as we seek to uh, understand the truth you've revealed to us more. Uh, Bless us with understanding, with uh, concentration, and bless us with joy as we find more treasures in your word. Um, Lord, may we leave uh, changed and ready to serve you more faithfully, more courageously uh, here in Lanaka. In Jesus' name, be with us. Amen. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair. One of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. I'm sure many of us are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Lettuce. That's a a quote from that book there. Uh, It's a classic back and forth between the minions of hell, describing how they're going to tempt uh, this, this new Christian and take him away from Christ. And whilst this new Christian remains unaware All is well for the tempters. 
because this Christian does not yet see what the church really is. As long as he remains aware of that, they're fine. They're happy. They can use it. However, if he was to see and understand, then even the boldest of hell's tempters would be terrified, would shudder at the prospect. Now, I would reckon that most of us, not necessarily most of us here, but many of us generally in the Christian world, we do not really know what the church is. We don't have eyes to see her glories. And so we only have the faintest idea of what it is that we're part of. So today, we're going to start thinking about that question. What is the church? What is it? We're familiar with the word. What do we mean when we say the church? And I wonder what answers you've heard to that question in your time. Uh, Here are some of them that I've heard. Uh, The church is not the building, it's the people. I'm sure many of you have heard that. I've heard the church is a hospital. I've heard the church is a lifeboat. I don't know if anyone else has heard that one. I've heard that one many times. The church is a lifeboat. Uh, Perhaps you've heard uh, other ones, great descriptions taken from the Bible itself. Things like the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the people of God. Uh, And as far as these are all just lifted from the Bible, then they are wonderful. They're true. Praise the Lord for them. And hopefully we're going to explore some of those um, later on in this session. And they're worth thinking deeply on. But before we get to those descriptions, the Bible's many descriptions of what the church is, I want to spend a little bit of time first dealing with a difficulty we have when we are trying to talk about the church, because there's actually a false distinction that has crept into our thinking, and it muddies the water, even when we're talking about descriptions that are otherwise just taken straight from the Bible. And that is a distinction in our minds between the true church and the visible church. A distinction between the true church and the visible church. Now, there are a couple of terms you might have heard before, and they're really, really useful terms when we use them in the proper way. And these are those terms, the visible church and the invisible church. Some of you might have heard those words. I've heard them many times. Even if you've not heard the exact terms before or heard them explained, I'm sure you're generally aware of the concept. The idea is that there is a church reality that is bigger than the church you can see in any one place on any one Sunday. There's a church reality that is bigger, that is not visible to any person, but invisible, something like that. And I find that these terms, they're very, very helpful in describing a historical reality. And the reality is that our church congregations are mixed. That is, they have faithful people in them and they have unfaithful people in them for now. I don't think any of us would deny this. This is a a reality. The evidence is before our face. There are people who claim to be Christians, but they don't act as if they trust him. Uh, Imagine you go to a church, any church on a Sunday, you walk through the door and, and what do you see? You see people You see the church there gathered in a sense, and you can see everyone who's there. You could stand at the front and you could say, everyone, uh, if you're a member of the church, come outside afterwards and we're going to take a church photo. And you'd you'd get the picture of the church there and you'd have a picture of the church membership uh, as it was in a particular place at a particular time. And in that sense, the church is visible. It's also visible as an institution. It has buildings. It has people in charge of various places. You could go to a church building on a Sunday and you could see the church do the church's thing. But there's more to be said than that, isn't there? Uh, Because if you looked at that same church photo 10 years later, you'd have to say things like, oh, look, there's, 
There's George. You know, he abandoned the faith a few years after this photo was taken. Oh, there's, there's, uh, there's Marjorie. She died a couple of weeks later. And so if you went back to that church and you saw it again, it would not be the same church as you saw on that day. The church you saw, the visible one you took a photo, photo of, was not a perfect representation of all the faithful in all time. For some in the photo, some who were in that visible church at that time, they were not really believers. Yet at that time, that distinction, who would prove to be in and who would prove to be out, was invisible to you. You couldn't see it. And add to that reality the fact that no single gathering ever has every Christian ever in attendance for a variety of reasons. And so we have these two terms to describe that reality, and they describe it pretty well, adequately at least. There is a visible church that we can see on a Sunday and an invisible church, all the members of the church throughout time that we can't see anywhere at once for now. These are useful terms if we use them as they were intended and coined. But via the twists and turns of modern uh, philosophy, a lot of misunderstanding has crept into our minds, into our imaginations, really, under cover of these terms. I want to spend a little bit of time uh, exploring that. Uh, As I say, this is not as these terms were first used or first coined, but rather these terms as we now view them through several hundred years of philosophical development and thinking. Development that, by the way, is largely alien to the Bible. Now, we can't go into detail of all of those developments, but here are the two key ideas that have taken up residence in our imagination. They've sort of nestled in there like a pair of bedbugs, and it's hard to remove them. these These are the waters we swim in, and they affect our imagination. Two key ideas that have affected how we view the church. Firstly, we no longer believe that what happens in time and history is important. And secondly, we no longer believe that what happens in our bodies is important. We no longer believe that what happens in time and history is important, and we no longer believe that what happens in our bodies is important. Let me explain those just a little bit uh, with some examples. So we no longer believe that what happens in time and history uh, is important. So um, think about this. Until about last week in history of the world terms, the promises that your grandparents made in the past uh, were incredibly important to you uh, because they were part of your history. That happened in time, and time flows towards you, and you were affected by what had passed. Uh, The history of your people in a particular place was important. Essentially, where the story had come from mattered, where the story was going after you mattered, what happened on a weekly basis, what happened on a seasonal basis, these things mattered. They happened in time and history. They mattered. All sorts of events in history bound you, tied you down, freed you up, and had an impact on your life because they were more than just cause and effect, more than just random objects bumping into each other, causing something, but weighty moments, moments with significance, eternal significance, um, from beyond what you could see. But now, now we barely know our history, and we struggle even to explain why what our parents did should have any effect on us at all. Many even struggle to see why something like a marriage, which is just a piece of paper signed in a moment of time, or even a promise, word said in a moment of time in your history, ought to have any lasting or binding significance beyond themselves. After all, moments in time, they're unimportant. What's happened before, it doesn't matter. Events in history have no meaning, because we no longer believe that what happens in time and history is important. 
And we no longer believe that what happens in our bodies is important or significant either. Another example here. Uh, In the past, something like sex was a physical act that sealed or even created a metaphysical reality bigger than itself. It sealed a covenant. Something invisible was created and signified by the visible, the physical. It was an act that bound things legally, covenantally, created a shared history. But today it is just a physical act that creates no real bindings or obligations or shared history, nothing that can't be dissolved in an instant. The act in the bodies create and signify nothing beyond itself, beyond physical pleasure. We no longer really believe that what happens in our bodies in time and in history is significant beyond itself. Why is this? Well, a few hundred years ago, in a particularly potent way, the way that we imagine the world uh, was really, uh, really changed, was split uh, into two levels. So we imagine reality, and we used to imagine reality as one whole. And now it's been split into two levels, um, sort of like the two stories of a house, an upper level and a lower level. I've got a diagram that hopefully uh, gets the point, helps to get the point across. So uh, in our way we imagine reality now, there is a higher, transcendent plane of reality where things of meaning are, and a lower, visible, mundane reality, the things we actually experience in time and history in our bodies. And we were told that these two layers have nothing really to do with each other. Nothing down here affects anything up there, and nothing up here can really be said to be important for anything down here. And that entered the imagination a few hundred years ago in a really potent way. The unbelieving world around us, they gave up entirely, almost entirely, on that transcendent upper realm. They decided to explain everything with only stuff down here, the things you could experience, cause and effect, senses. We Christians, for some reason, we forgot our our Christianity for a moment and we accepted this model of reality, but we knew and we were faithful enough to know that we couldn't give up on everything transcendent altogether. And so what we did was we shoved everything important, everything with meaning, and here's the really important shift, we shoved all of that up there. Stuff down here changes, is material, it's historical, it involves bodies. And in our false two-story model of the universe, that means that it isn't really important in any way, and it doesn't correspond to any higher meaning at all. That barrier is almost unbreachable. All right, so what does this have to do with the church? That's a lot of, uh, a lot of setup um, for something. Uh, well, the church is important, and we know that. And it has meaning. We know that. And we already say that there is an invisible church that contains all the believers ever. So it must, right, if it's important, if it has meaning, if, it, uh, if we can't see it, then it must exist up there in that higher realm of reality. But then we know, really, don't we, that it also exists down here in time and history and place with people and bodies. We have institutions, we have meeting places, we have, we have people going to places and doing things with other people. So where does the church exist? Nothing can really exist in both. Nothing can really uh, go between both. After all, that divide between the two is more or less entirely fixed and un- un- unbreachable. Where here, here is what we'll say. 
how, how we'll solve the problem. We'll say the real church is up here. And in its essence, it is invisible, ahistorical, does not involve people or bodies. It's basically an idea. It's outside of history. And this stuff down here that we can see, the places we go on Sunday, the institutions, the people we meet with, all of that is sort of, well, it's the fake church. At best, it's a shell. It is institutional. It has action in history, and therefore, it is unimportant. Now, the invisibility of the church, the whole church, used to say something about a historic reality. The whole church, perfected altogether, is not visible yet. But it has turned into a different kind of thing. We now say that the true church is invisible because all real and important things are. And so, for large parts of the church today, we think that the visible church, what we go to on Sundays, where we, uh, the institution of the church, is not really the church. It's not really the thing. It's not the important bit, anyway. At best, it might be a bit of a shell for the church, a sanctuary for members of the real church to escape their lives once a week, either through uh, mystical feeling, if you're on the more charismatic end of things, or through rational thought, pure rational thought, if you're not on the charismatic end of things. Uh, We might think of it as something to keep the members of the real church going for another week until they finally get to escape into the great ideal, the great out-of-history, unphysical nirvana on the second floor, where they can escape into perfect idea. But there are functionally two churches in our imaginations, a real one and a fake one. And the visible one, the one that we go to and that we are part of and that we are members of, in our imagination, is emphatically the fake one. Now, the problem is, however, that none of that, none of this scheme is biblical. Because the Bible tells us that the stuff that happens in time and history and in our bodies is not fake and meaningless. And the Bible tells us there is only one church, and she, like every created thing, exists in history. Now, perhaps this is interesting. Perhaps it's not interesting. Maybe. I don't want to speak for you. But the main question is, so what? If this is an illness in the church's imagination, which I think it is, where are the symptoms? Where are the symptoms of this? Well, let me list some of the symptoms. Many people think that they can be a Christian without going to a church. Or more bizarrely, they think they can be a member of the church, the real church, without being part of the visible church. I think that's a symptom of this. Another one. We've moved the center of the Christian life to our own personal devotions by ourselves Instead of the center of our Christian life being with the church and her ministry of the word and ministry of the sacrament. Talking of sacraments, talking of baptism and communion, for most of us, they've become more or less irrelevant most of the time. They're visible. They happen in time. They happen in our bodies. So, after all, well, they can't be anything more real there than just a reminder, a reminder of what goes on in the real upper story. We imagine that nominal believers 
are exactly the same as unbelievers. As if the name that someone takes on themselves in time and history, the baptism they receive in time and history is irrelevant. Another symptom, we don't care that much about institutional unity. What does it matter whether or not we become institutionally connected? Because the institutional, historical, visible church, it isn't the real church anyway. It's just a shell, a placeholder. We don't care much anymore about the church's place or influence on history or society. And at best, we tend to view that as slightly suspect. Many choose a church to attend based on nothing more than taste or what suits them. After all, none of the visible things that they do together is real or important or significant. We've decided that in no way should the church ever be identified with the building. And we've decided that online church is almost as good as the real thing. And quite frankly, it's no surprise that this has taken off so easily. Disembodied, ahistorical souls doing nothing or other together except thinking of ideas is exactly the church that we've been imagining for generations already. In our imagination, the real church is invisible and exists really, well, nowhere. It's an idea. In our imaginations, there are two churches, a real one and a fake one, an important one and an unimportant one, an invisible one and a visible one. And this is a distinction that the Bible does not know. And what it's true that many formal members of the church are not faithful members of the church, and what it's true that some of the faithful are invisible to any of us at the moment because they died, and now they're in another part of creation in heaven, and what it's true that some of the faithful are invisible to us because they haven't been born yet, and whilst it's true that some of the faithful are invisible to us in Cyprus because they live in Mongolia or Thailand or Scotland, they are or will be still part of the one historical institutional church, the one that we see gathered week in, week out. All right, why have we spent so much time thinking about this? Well, if the thing that you're thinking of is completely different from the thing that God is talking to you about and describing to you, then you will not end up with the right results or the right understanding, even if you pay, pay close attention to all of the instructions, all of the descriptions given to you. We've imagined, uh, we've imagined a church that is different from the one that all of the Bible's descriptions apply to, and so it's no surprise that we end up flunking those instructions and those descriptions, even though we know them well. But there is one church, she is spread out through history and splendor. She is an army with banners, terrible and glorious. And it's this one church to which all of the Bible's descriptions of the church apply. And those descriptions of the church are now where I want us to turn for the rest of our time together this morning. I want us to think about now what it means that the church is the household of God, the body of Christ, the pillar and buttress of the truth and the bride of Christ. I'm sure that many of us are familiar with these descriptions uh, from our time as a Christian, and I'm sure many of us are very fond of these descriptions, but we might not necessarily be clear on the kind of things that they mean. So let's go through them in a little bit more detail and fill up these phrases with some content from the Bible. Okay, so firstly, the church is the household of God. This is 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church 
of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You can also see this description of the church as household in, uh, in Hebrews 3, uh, verses 1 to 6. And again, in 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5. Uh, I won't read those now, but they're written down on your handout. Um, the church is the household of God. And to properly understand, understand this description, I think we need a little bit of a refresher on what a household is in the first place. Otherwise, the description won't mu- go much further beyond a sort of placeholder phrase for us. Something to say, but without much content. This is how we view a household today. Uh, We kind of see it almost exactly the same as the word family. We see it as a collection of individuals who happen to live in the same house, and they come to live in the same house usually by accident of birth or accident of falling in love. Uh, And to our mind, the household isn't very much. It's not for very much more than that. It's a place to eat, sometimes together, if, uh, if we like each other and we're strange. It's somewhere to watch Netflix. It's somewhere to sleep before you go back to work the next day. And there's perhaps a couple of other things. Maybe a household goes on holiday together once or twice a year. This is how we view a household. But this has never been what a household actually is. And we live in a strange period of time that doesn't really know what one is. Everyone knew it when this description of the church was written. Everyone knew what the household was. Everyone knew that the household was the fundamental structure of society. That the household was a productive, fruitful institution. Uh, Nearly all businesses were family businesses. Being part of the family meant being part of the business. Everyone knew that, that a family, a household, had a family government, a hierarchy of function and authority within that structure. Father as head, mother at his side, children under their authority, household servants thrown into the mix as well, all to varying degrees in authority over uh, the household land, the home, the livestock, the cat. Everyone knew that a household was joined together covenantally, that is, held together by both law and personal relational connection. So everyone knew that with households, legal obligations arose semi-organically. A relationship, whether personal or familial relationship, uh, gave rise to vows and promises. And in the ground that those vows and promises created, Deep interpersonal love grew and overflowed, uh, creating uh, in its turn other beings to whom the household had binding obligations and who in turn would have obligations to the rest of the household. The household held together covenantally, held together through a personal, legal reality. And everyone knew that though the household belonged to the head of the household, it also belonged to every member and each had a claim to a portion, a share in the common wealth of the household. And everyone knew that a household had an heir, someone who would rule over all the stuff, who'd be tasked with reigning justly for the further flourishing of the household and all of its members. That is what a household is. When this description was written, everyone knew it, perhaps imperfectly, but it was generally known. And the church is the household of God. And we need to make sure we get the order of the metaphor the right way around here. Paul doesn't uh, do this. He doesn't say, right, I need to describe the church. Let me look around and see what kind of things have we invented in this culture that might look a little bit like what I'm saying. Aha, households, that'll do. That's fine. It's good enough. It's the other way around. The household was always a microcosm, a microcosmos, a small version of the whole universe. 
For the cosmos is a great estate, a great property owned by God, all of its all of its inky depths, its soaring heights, its clouds of newborn stars, they're all his. And all of it is intended by him to reap a harvest of bounteous praise to his glory. It's all his. It's his estate, his property. And he set Adam and his offspring over it, each with a portion to work and keep on his behalf, to manifest and establish the glory of God's rule and ownership in every corner. And though they rebelled, and sought to take the property for themselves, he has now, through a series of wondrous events, set his firstborn and only begotten son over it all as the inheritor of it all. And he, the firstborn, sets the redeemed sons of Adam, his brothers and subjects, over it once more, each over a portion to work it and keep it on his behalf and to be his means of bringing the rest of the rebels under his feet until the final enemy is defeated. The cosmos is property, and it is all to be inherited by a household that God has been building from the beginning. And that household is called the church, for the church is the household of God. And that household has weekly household gatherings, assemblies that we call churches that meet in little house buildings called churches. And these gatherings are a small, particularly concentrated manifestation of the household of God, a microcosm, again, a small version of the whole. And in those household gatherings, the family members ascend together to the family throne room by the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of their inheritance, to worship and receive the assurance of mercy from the head of the household. They, after all, are saved rebels, adopted children, and they need this assurance of mercy weekly. They gather together to hear the words of the head of the household preached, to receive encouragement, rebuke, instruction, and then they gather around the family table and share in household fellowship bought by the blood of the firstborn son. The church universal is the household of God, and our church gatherings are particular weekly manifestations of that. Here are some implications of that, of that householdness of the church. The church, like the household, is a covenantally bound institution. It is personal. It is legal. It is an institution. It is a relationship of deep familial love that comes with obligations, as well as overflowing blessings and kindness. And because it is a covenantal institution, it has boundaries as well. There are those who are in and those who are out, as well as a sign, a marker, that you are in, a sign that you really are a child of this household with all the blessings and obligations that come with that. Secondly, uh, the householdness of the church means the church has a government. There is a head, Christ, and he has appointed an order. It is not anything goes in the house of the Lord. And this is, uh, this is particularly applicable to her weekly household gatherings. Not just anyone can do any job in the household gathering of the household of God. God, in his household, has established a range of authorities all under the head of varying degrees and jurisdictions, and there are qualifications to enter those positions of authority. You can see passages like 1 Timothy 3 for those. A third implication. The members of the church, the household, are to be fruitfully productive 
for the sake of this household kingdom. According to their gifts and talents and station in life, they set themselves to guard and tend their corner of the family property, the cosmos, whichever part has been given to them by God in this time. And in this current age, a large part of that includes bringing the still rebellious nations under the feet of Christ the head, which is done in this age by the proclamation of the gospel, by the proclamation that Jesus has come, died, raised, been raised from the dead, and has now sat at the right hand of the Father, given all authority and power over the whole world. Another implication, the church in Christ the firstborn is the one who will inherit everything. Everything is the inheritance of the household of God, and we as members of that household will receive our share. The church is the household of God. Okay, the church is also, moving on to our next, uh, next description, the church is also the body of Christ. And again, I'm sure we're very familiar with this description. And there's not a huge amount that I want to add here. The body is almost a metaphor for the household. Note that both have a head and both have members. The most famous uh, church as the body passage is in 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Here are the things that I think Paul is adding to this picture of what the church is with this description. The body uh, image is chiefly a picture of unity and diversity. There is one head that unites Christ is the head of the body, the church. One body knit together by Christ, not knit together by ethnicity or cultural background or common interest or common situation in life or even whether you can make yourself spend a pleasant afternoon together. The church is knit together in one head that is Christ, knit together covenantally by one baptism, sharing in one spirit, poured out by one covenant Lord. But within that one body, there are different people with different callings. Some will be pastors and elders for the Lord. Some will administrate for the Lord. Some will sweep streets for the Lord. Some are still children for the Lord for now. Some are elderly for the Lord for now. Some will be women for the Lord. Some will be men for the Lord. Some will be remarkably presentable, like the eminently presentable face. Some will be remarkably unpresentable, like the unpresentable, well, I mean, you know, the unpresentable bits. I won't mention them by name. Best to give them their dignity, as Paul tells us. All these are one body, though, united not by usefulness, not by dignity or perceived value, not united even by their ability to spend time together, but joined covenantally by one spirit in one baptism, under one covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So some implications of this, uh, this, therefore, for us. There will be different people in the church who will do different things, and that is a good thing. That is a healthy thing. Otherwise, the household of God would crumble into joyless uselessness rather than blessed fruitfulness. A couple of things to note on that, though. Um, desire is not the only thing that decides what our part of the body is. It's not just what you want to do. That is decided by a host of things within a hierarchy of authoritativeness. Uh, Whether you're male or female, for example, will, will trump desire in this equation. But the point is, God gives a variety of offices, talents, limitations, opportunities, and desires. And we should expect and hope for this full variety to happen within the body. All, of course, under the rule 
and only under the rule of Christ the head. There is diversity within the body, and yet these different parts are united under Christ in one church, united by their confession of the truth and their baptism, not by a particular ethnic grouping, by a line of business, or, a common one today, not united by a mission or vision statement either. The church is the body of Christ, united and varied. The church is also, moving on to our next description, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, we return to 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 to see this. Uh, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, A pillar and buttress, those are architectural terms. These are things that support a building. Uh, Imagine the Parthenon in Athens. Uh, Even now, it has lots of pillars holding up the remains of a a once very grand structure. Even today, it's quite a grand structure. In its day, those pillars and buttresses displayed grandeur and glory. And that grandeur has fallen to a large extent because, for a variety of reasons, those pillars and those buttresses have crumbled. Well, the church is the pillar and buttress of the greater and grander building of the truth. John Calvin, commenting on these verses, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said this, that you could, you could heap up all of the good things about all of the glories of the pagan world, and the pile would not remotely compare to this great truth about the Christian church, that she is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. You could look at, at the greatest edifice to pagan prowess, held up by its pillars and buttresses on a prominent hill, and you would see, compared to the calling that the church has, compared to the thing that the church has been given to display before the world, that pagan edifice is a crumbling pile of rubble. Because the church has been given the task to guard the truth and to proclaim the truth. Here is what the Lord wants. If you were to go to Spain in the 12th century or Peru in the 15th or Australia, Siberia or the Okavango Delta of Uganda in the 27th century, the Lord God wants the truth to be there and to be displayed clearly to the world. And he's given the church that job. She is the one who has the truth and is to hold out the truth. She is the light of the world, a shining city on a hill. She is the heavenly Jerusalem populated with prophets and angels calling the rebels to repent and calling the saints to rejoice. Now, some in the church's history have got this a little confused, and by some, I mean particularly the Roman Catholics. The church isn't the pillar and buttress of the truth in that she and her bishops in Rome get to decide what is true and false. The church isn't the foundation of the truth, in other words. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth in that she declares and holds out the truth. She recognizes and displays the truth that has been revealed to her by Christ in his authoritative word to the scriptures. She is the recognizer and proclaimer of the truth, not the author of the truth. A couple of implications then for the church. This is an inherently public role. The church cannot aspire to be a hobby club in a corner. And whilst the church can only be as public as circumstances allow in any given period of time, the ideal is for the church's voice to be heard in society with the call to repentance, with the message of mercy in the gospel, and with the sweet honey of instruction. 
Her voice is to cry out in the marketplace, compelling the nations to come in. And this is a public job. The church is also to guard and declare the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Therefore, it is faithlessness to her calling for the church to give up on the truth. And we can easily, I think, look at a variety of liberal churches in the world doing exactly that and say, well, they do that. That's not what we are at risk of. But perhaps here, a warning for us. We may not have been tempted to stop believing the whole truth, but we may have been tempted to stop proclaiming the whole truth out of a fear of appearing unapproachable. We, for the supposed sake of our witness, have started to act as if the church is the pillar and buttress of respectability, of politeness, the pillar and buttress of making everyone feel good about themselves. And so, though we might not be in immediate danger of disbelieving the truth, we are in the danger of hiding the truth, of putting our shining city under a bowl instead of on a hill. And it has been seen time and time again through the church's history that refusing to proclaim the truth is only one short step away from refusing to believe the truth. If the church will not witness the truth clearly, she has no true witness. And if she will not be salt, she is fit only to be trampled underfoot. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And finally, uh, this morning, the church is also the bride of Christ. Here's a little bit of uh, Revelation 21, where we get this image. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, I've also noted on your handout Ephesians 5 there for this image, and also that the Old Testament is filled with this description. Uh, Note particularly the book of Hosea. It's the central metaphor there. God's people and God, uh, God being the husband and his people being his bride. And I think we feel uh, like we intuitively get this one. After all, we all know what a bride is. We know what a bride looks like on our wedding day. She looks beautiful. And that intuition of ours is vitally important to this description, uh, particularly when we're thinking about that uh, comparison in Revelation 21, a bride adorned for her husband. She is radiantly beautiful. She is spotless and pure. And this here is a vision of the time when there will be no sin left in the church, when she will reflect with her beauty and spotless beauty the glory of her bridegroom Christ. A vision of a time when her character matches her role, when she is the glory of the glory, the crown on his head. Now, she doesn't really look like that at the moment to us, does she? We look around at the church, we see she's filled with sin, that she's crippled with error, that she's not very glorious often. But the great strength of this description here is giving us the clear-eyed vision that what we see around us now isn't the end of the story and that we can be sure the future of the church is better than it is now. As this bride is adorned in beauty, ready for her marriage to her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the image of the bride here is more than just beauty and spotless purity. It's also about authority. Uh, in this, this image is, is used in Ephesians 5. Marriage is a picture of the church and Christ. And from the church end, church's end, that means she, the bride, is under the authority of Christ the husband. 
It's also about his love for her there in Ephesians 5, which shows itself in his salvation of her and his washing of her with the word, sanctifying her and cleansing her to be present, uh, presented without spot or blemish. How he, how he nourishes her, cherishes her, as she submits to his authority in everything. Following um, the image of Christ and the church is the image of, of husband and wife. Um, and that, that shows authority and, 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 and following as well as nourishing and cherishing. Uh, there are other things I think we miss as well, though, in this description, uh, because we think we're familiar with weddings and with brides. For example, the church is the bride of Christ, and that means that she is the queen of the cosmos. He is the inheritor of it all, the king of it all, and she is the queen of it all. The church is the bride of Christ, and that means she is the mother of God's people. She nurtures them and instructs them. Uh, This is how earlier Protestants put it. They said that outside of her, that is the church, the visible church, in fact, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, we ought to remember that in the ancient world, nations were often described as the bride or wife of the king as well. And so this description also brings into mind that which the people of God were always meant to be, uh, the holy nation, the people uh, of God. Uh, That is a picture from Exodus all the way through to 1 Peter. Uh, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The image of bride and bridegroom is also an image of king and holy nation, and we should remember that as well. Uh, We're running out of time to go into all of the implications of this, but this final description gives us several things, I think. Firstly, it shows us how much Christ loves his people, how committed he is to protecting her, to saving her, to making her holy. In your moments of despair at the state of the church, Take this, take, this, uh, take this call to repent. It's not your church. You have no right to despair of it. And no matter how much you think you care about her, she's not your bride. And you are not the one who died for her. And he cares more than you can ever care for this people. This also means that hope is the order of the day. We have the vision of the perfect spotlessness uh, of the church adorned for her husband ahead of us. This means that you should remember the church is your mother, if you are a believer, and the bride of your king, and she's owed your respect. And remember that you, individual Christian that you are, are part of the adornment of this uh, bride. You're part of her wedding dress. So be of good heart that the work that has begun in you will come to its completion. Her future spotlessness includes, though it is not limited to, your future perfect spotlessness and so aim your life to that end so then what is the church she is the household of god she is the body of christ she is the pillar and buttress of the truth she is the bride of christ she is and will be all of these things in history this is what those small unimpressive little gatherings you see around every sunday are this is what They are. They may be a small part of it. They may be a snapshot of it in time, but they are the real thing. So here's my closing charge to you as we end this session. If you think little of her, if you think little of the church, or think you can do without the church, you're wrong. 
Remember that outside the church is where Paul sends the unrepentant. And heed that warning. You don't want to be outside of the church. She is the thing that God is doing. She is the one uh, that Christ has given himself for. If you're looking for what God is doing in the world, what he's doing in your life, look to her first, to the church. The church is the thing God is building. And if you think that the work of the church can be done in a corner without drawing attention, or if you think that the church is just a sanctuary of escape, think again. The history of the world is intrinsically tied to her history. But most of all, if your eyes have been closed to the true nature of the church, open them and see her as she really is. An army, an army with banners as terrible to the darkness as the dawn is to the night, as clear and radiant as the stars in their dancing dominions. The people of the living God, clothed in white, washed by the blood of the slain Son of God, the people who now feast with him and sing as they do so. Open your eyes and see her as she really is, the bride dressed for her husband, the glory on his head, the queen of the cosmos restored. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you have told us about the church. Lord, help us to take these descriptions to heart and help us learn to love her. Help us to learn to, lo to love and honour your church. Lord, join us to her. And Lord, we pray that as we meet with your people week in, week out, you would change us more into the image of Christ, that you would meet with us, speak to us, eat with us around your table. Father, help us to see these things and help us to love these things and so help us to be more faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.